don't think that famous academic wouldn't be happy to hear from a student. We have to have formal training to be able to do what they call like an elevator pitch, meaning that you have to have your 30 second version because sometimes all you get is the elevator ride up. There are human beings who are taking risks and they need to make clear choices about those risks um, and that it's our job to make sure that they're informed. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. I just love yeah, that stuff. They're fascinating. And I, I will admit, at least at least once a week, I get a text with a shaky cell phone picture from a friend saying, what is this? <laughs> you know, some, some beetle that was crawling across their, their living room or something like that. Hi, y'all. My name is Jenna Rindy. And I'm Shanice Jacobs. And you're listening to Vitamin PhD. Today, we have two excellent guests here to talk with us about their experience in undergraduate education, and we're excited to hear from them. Good thing. Uh, Takeo Rivera, he, him, uh, assistant professor in English with uh, core affiliation with women's gender sexuality studies, as well as affiliation with uh, African-American studies and recently uh, the Center for Anti-Racist Research. Um, yeah, I teach courses in Asian American literature, uh, contemporary drama, queer theory, technoculture is a, sort of a broad range of various humanity subjects within uh, the English department. Happy to be here. So I'm Catherine Spilios. I go by she, hers. And I have been at BU since 2008. It's kind of weird to actually think back over that time. Lots of, lots of things have happened, of course. I, I have three different positions. Um, so I am the director of instructional labs in biology. I am a master lecturer and I am the director of the learning assistant program. So kind of depending on who I'm talking to and you know what, what issues are arising, I wear many different hats and all of my roles really do surround teaching in one way or another. And they sort of you know, really span the whole range. So I'm most involved with students when I'm, you know, up front, <laughs> uh, up in front of the class. And I oversee and teach and manage and coordinate our majors introductory uh, courses. So fall and spring. I also have a large administrative side to my position. And I, I make sure all of the teaching labs in biology are functioning appropriately. All of the graduate teaching fellows have what they need. All of the instructional staff have what they need. So sort of have the administrative oversight of that piece of the biology department. And then the learning assistant program is maybe one of the pieces that I, I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated by and endlessly excited by. And at the LA program, we have undergraduates sort of join the, the, the teaching team of a, of a course and they work one-on-one -on -one with grad students or faculty in, uh, in, a, in a lab section, in a discussion section. They are trained in pedagogy, so they take a course on basic education theory and it's just a really fantastic program. I, I find your background really interesting because I wonder how how one goes from a background in science to a position in teaching and education. And that 
that transition is really interesting to me um, because I've thought about that myself. Um, and I know a lot of other people have thought about going, taking their science degree and doing something more um, in, like engaging and something more in terms of communication with it. And I, I am curious how you made that decision and um, how you found that opening. So my PhD is actually in entomology and I love it. I mean, I am honestly, I'm just endlessly fascinated and you can ask any student that knows me and they're like, yeah, she talks about bugs a lot. (laughs) And I, I just, I'm, I'm such a, a a bug nerd to be honest. Uh, But while I was in my uh, PhD research, I, I had many different opportunities to, Uh, well, to teach. Um, I was an NSF fellow for this um, outreach program that we did. And I just found that teaching and engaging with students, regardless of what level, college level, uh, elementary, middle, high school, just being a part of that conversation really, it really got me out of bed in the morning in a way that while I absolutely loved, you know, my work and my research, it just felt a little different. I knew when I took this position at BU, I knew there was zero research. And actually, when I first started, I was, I was staff. I wasn't even hired in as faculty. I was a full-time instructional staff member. And I definitely asked myself, you know, ooh, this is, this is a pretty specific pathway away, or I should say in a different direction than what I had previously thought my academic career would take me. But I just kept coming back to the fact that teaching and and communication and thinking about learning and thinking about biology and, you know, every single aspect of biology and, and sharing that enthusiasm and that love with a whole bunch of other people was what really drew me in in the first place. On that so note, Takeo, can you tell us can about you your background and uh, how you got to your current position? So I, I'll start by saying that back in undergrad, um, you know, I started as an ethnic studies major at Stanford. Um, what their equivalent was called comparative studies and race and ethnicity. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it wasn't so much the academic work that I was most passionate about when I was a college student. Um, it was really that it was the activism. I was, uh, I was a very active uh, slam poet and spoken word artist at the time. Um, but what was really interesting is that in those kind of artist spaces, um, especially within the spoken word wor- worlds, intellectual inquiry was really kind of the name of the game. I ended up doing my master's in modern thought and literature the year after that at Stanford. And I got really burned out actually. I thought, I thought that um, I had this impression that academia was a load of BS. Um, I felt it was extremely ivory tower and, and disconnected from, uh, from any semblance of, of, of anything relevant or important. Uh, so I ended up working for uh, the West Coast equivalent of Men Against Rape, which is called the My Strength Program. And basically what we did was we went into uh, sort of, you know, kind of like low-income schools in, in, in Santa Clara County. 
And, you know, I worked with the young boys there to basically train them to become feminists and train them to become like anti-rape anti ad, ad, advocates. Wow. I began to realize that a lot of the ideas that I was, that I had gotten from both undergrad and masters, uh, especially in regards to academic theory, gender theory, uh, you know, Judith Butler and so forth, critical race theory, haha. <laughs> um, all that stuff um, was really suddenly applicable. I was able to suddenly apply that in the context of the My Strength program, and also for that matter, working with, with the victims of sexual assault. So it was, it was kind of, that's actually ended up how I ended up uh, returning to academia was realizing that the community work that I was doing actually had its limits. I got to teach a lot when I was, when I was a PhD student at Berkeley. And um, again, it was just kind of like marrying practice and theory um, and also my own research on top of that. So, I, so all in all, I would say I would credit both my spoken word experience for kind of giving me the, 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 the passion for inquiry and articulation and my experience in the rape crisis arena for my for passion for pedagogy and application of these ideas. So um, what do you think are some of the different challenges that you face in academia compared to your community work? But in terms of uh, some of the challenges at an, at an institution such as this one, um, BU is, is extremely rich uh, <laughs> uh, in a way that these nonprofits are not. Right, um, and with that comes with it advantages and disadvantages. The advantage, obviously, is like oodles and oodles of resources. Um, so you know, it's it's much easier in that respect. Uh, but then, I guess, I guess, I guess the disadvantage is that uh, in an institution like this one, especially as an R one, and I still have the pressure to to publish, and I, you know, and I'm proud of the, the writing that I'm doing, uh, but. But I do feel like the institution just structurally does not value or incentivize teaching to the same extent that incentivizes research, right? You can you can change like a two dozen students' lives over the course of the semester, and they'll tell you that. But that won't matter nearly as much as putting out one article, right? And I'm wondering, Catherine, do you feel that same pressure because um, you are in kind of a different position? So do you feel that similar pressure? um as as someone in your position or not so for me i mean given the landscape there which just by the way i mean Takeo, what an amazing background and i have a million and one questions for you too um but oh actually one thing that you did mention that i just wanted to bring up briefly i i thought it was so powerful that you shared that you were at at one point in your career you almost became you know disenfranchised with academia and 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 disheartened by the ivory tower. And I think that's so powerful to recognize and to share. So thank you for sharing that because I think that is a very real framework that many of us face at one point or another. And you know, if, if grad students are thinking and feeling that, it's important to know that you know, they're not alone and, and <laughs> we're all here. <laughs> um, uh, so my position, I'm not tenure track. I'm, I'm on the lecture track. So publishing is not part of my uh, uh, promotion dossier. When I, when I do publish, it's great. Um, the department loves it, but it's not, that is not the structure of my position. So many of the non-tenure track positions, not, not just at BU, but I'm talking everywhere, um, 
either do not have a publishing uh, focus or it's, it's minimized in comparison to teaching. What is something that's been rewarding for you in doing both the advocacy work, but then in also teaching and connecting with your students? Um, you know, I, I, to take this semester as an example, this most recent semester with the, you know, the attacks in Atlanta, and then the semester before that with, you know, obviously George Floyd, um, I do feel like I was stretched very, very thin in terms of the demands for the university to do racial justice responses, right? Uh, especially when it came to Asian American stuff with the Atlanta massacre. However, as exhausting as it has been, and I, I am dead tired from it, um, I will also say it was one of the most rewarding periods of my life in terms of my ability to give the ways I've always wanted to give. These are the things that I care about. These are the things that, that if I want to try to make a mark on some small way on the world, uh, I feel like I'm being kind of called to action in the ways that, that are, are deeply important to me. So it's, it's, so I do feel very grateful that, um, that I get to be in a position that, that gives me just enough institutional power to make a difference. Um, you know, I think a lot of the meaningful conversations, those one-on-one -on -one conversations come about either at the beginning or the end, you know, those just kind of off the cuff, hey, how, how's it going? You know, tell me about your day. Um, and those were just notably absent. And so trying to form some sort of community um, in, in, a, in a landscape which is notably absent of any community, um, it, it was really challenging. I mean, I, you know, the feedback that I got from students was, um, it was powerful, you know, and that's, that's what, that's what drives me is, is hearing back from students that I made some difference in their life. Um, whether it's, you know, large and profound and I influenced their career decisions or whether it was, I was having a terrible day that day. And when you started lecture, you told everybody to pause and be kind to themselves and that you are here for everybody. And those 10 seconds actually made a difference for me. So thanks. You know, so even, even just the small pieces uh, can, be, can be pretty powerful this as you both were talking is that you have all of these components of your job that are very rewarding that you can look back on and remind you of why you're teaching but um what's something that you wish you knew before those hard days and those uh rewarding days as well what's something you wish you knew before entering your job sure oh it's uh, that's such a such a fantastic question i think two things come to mind one is that some days are going to be really tough um, you know, in, in the teaching environment, um, I have definitely been pushed to my, my knowledge limits, and yet I have to go stand in front of a classroom and be authoritative when the reality is, is I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't admit that to any, anybody that I've taught that I'm, I'm exaggerating that, right? <laughs> um, but that's okay, right? Um, the other thing, I think imposter syndrome is real and tell yourself you belong where you are. For sure, you belong where you are. You got to where you are because you are good at what you do. And there, I mean, 
I think everybody questions, should I really be teaching here? Should I really be doing what I'm doing? And the answer is absolutely you should. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I just want to double up on everything Catherine just said. Like, that was like 100% spot on, uh, especially the imposter syndrome thing. Like that is uh, extremely real. What I think it's important that we don't try to kill imposter syndrome, but we try to live with it as a shitty roommate, right? So like, you know, imposter syndrome is, is, is it's here to stay, but you know, if you can learn how to coexist with it, sometimes even use it to your advantage, uh, realize that everyone else actually is feeling it too, right? Um, you know, then it becomes more manageable. And the problem is, if we are the type of person who's going to get a PhD, then chances are in our lives, we probably measured ourselves based on what grade we were getting, right? That's kind of like how, we, how good we knew we were doing as humans is like, did I get my A today, right? Once you reach a certain point, you're going to stop getting A's, right? You're going to stop and you're going to look for a certain other clear metrics for how to judge how well how successful you are and and i think that it's it's hard to like not have a's anymore it's it's hard to like create your own metrics um but that's that's something that i'm still working on um but i'm starting to grow increasingly comfortable with and at a certain point you, it's important to think less in terms of what how you're being graded in your life and more important to think through is my life satisfying? Is, am I doing what I what I want to do, what I need to do? I I thank you so much. There's been so much amazing information that we can take out of this, and um, you have been excellent guests. Um, we are we wanted to know if you wanted to do a couple rapid fire questions really quickly. Okay, number one, what does teaching mean to you? Passion, enthusiasm sharing sharing my love having having other people say oh that's cool yeah yeah I love that perfect okay number two what does learning mean to you learning means to take an introspective look at what you do and do not know which we're terrible at knowing what we do not know and seeing how you can build that knowledge for yourself if you were to choose a different career tomorrow what would it be? Actually, I've had this conversation with people. I would open a plant nursery. Oh, I would be so surrounded fun. by plants. I would have a giant greenhouse. Just, I would, I would live among plants. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and bugs too, of course. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, who is the biggest inspiration in your teaching? Oh man, as I'm, as I'm thinking through this, you know, I just like, there's, there's a Rolodex of, of people who have been so um, profound. Um, I mean, to be honest, going way back, my sixth grade science teacher is probably the first person. Uh, uh, this person just noticed that I, I was like kind of nerdy about biology and, and went with it. And he gave me extra opportunities. He ordered me a rat that I could dissect on my own, even though it wasn't part of the curriculum, because he knew that I would think it was cool. <laughs> no, I love that, though. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it starts as early as six, but that that inspiration can come from anyone at any time. So I think any your answer to that is really great. Thank you so much. 
amazing. You are in the right space, Catherine. We support yep. all of your endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, what does teaching mean to you? Growth. It means trying to figure out the best way someone can grow and what direction they need to go. It's all about growth. That's great. What does learning mean to you? Humility. Mm. Um, very similar to what Catherine said. It's about trying to figure out what, yeah, as, as Catherine said, right? Knowing, trying to figure out what you don't know and being willing to admit that. I love that. And if you were to choose a different career tomorrow, what would it be? Science fiction novelist. Ooh. Straight up. I actually do okay. a little bit on the side, but I, you know, but not professionally. <laughs> Who is the biggest inspiration to your teaching? I think there are two remarkable women I'd like to give shout outs to. Um, one is, uh, she was my elementary school teacher for three years, a woman named Carol Butcher um, at Hannah Ranch Elementary in, in, uh, in uh, Hercules, California. And she really recognized uh, potential in everyone, including myself. Uh, she thought that I was going to become a, a particle physicist. She actually gave me a particle physics book. Um, the second is that the second major mentor in my life is probably is actually quite famous. Her name is Shirley Moraga, the great considered one of the founders of women of color feminism in the early 1980s, uh, co-editor co of Bridge, Bridge Called My Back. Um, she she taught me how to write plays. She taught she gave me my my earliest training in queer in queer theory and queer ideas on uh, intersections between uh, you know women of color feminism and my own life um, she, I would credit so much of who I am as as a teacher and as an activist and a person today to a lot of the lessons I learned from her classrooms and from her office hours Well, I must say we are both grateful for both of your villages and all of the support that they gave both of you to get you to the places where you are now. Um, for us even to have this conversation and to learn from you and see how we have just been made better because you've given us such great wisdom and advice um, and encouragement to actually go out into the world and to do something really, really amazing with it. So thank you both so much. Um, my last question is, is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, anything exciting that you want to talk about? Uh, well, it is true. Yes, uh, my, my book should be coming out probably at the beginning of next year. It's called Model Minority Masochism, Performing the Cultural Politics of Asian American Masculinity. Um, so that should be out from Oxford University Press, I think, in 2022. Um, but probably the bigger thing I definitely want to plug right now, frankly, is uh, uh, we're currently making some efforts towards establishing an Asian American Studies program and pushing for more, more ethnic studies faculty to get hired by BU. But, but please feel free to reach out to me via email if you'd like to be involved with that effort. Um, that we're gonna need a lot of allies. Um, I guess I don't have anything specific to plug, but you know, there are so many opportunities out there. And one of, the, one of the big strengths of BU is the number of opportunities that are there, which sometimes, sometimes can be a little daunting. Um, so, you know, find things that are of interest. The, there's, if, if you're in the biology realm, there's a, um, the, um, the biology 
uh, um, anti-racism committee, there's the CAS diversity and inclusion action team. You know, there are so many things out there. There are so many teaching opportunities, learning opportunities, professional development opportunities and uh, go for it. My final word is just gratitude. Thank you both again for such a great conversation. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Thank you both so much. I appreciate your time. Now we've come to the end of our conversation with two amazing professors, uh, Catherine and Takeo. So thank you for hanging out with me, Shanice. And me, Jenna. For an episode of Vitamin PhD, looking at undergraduate education. We look forward to being with you for the next episode.